Al Jazeera podcast. When we last left you, there had been a near complete communications blackout in the Gaza Strip. There is a cut pretty much all over the Gaza Strip, and families are disconnected from not only each other, but pretty much from the outside world. For people there, and even those with family and friends there, the worst part was not knowing. You have no contact with your family, with your friends, with your relatives. As this was happening, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, announced the war on Gaza had entered its second stage. You've got them attacking from the air, from the sea, and now from the ground. There are troops there already, and earlier today they've said that they've added an additional number of troops on top of those that are already inside. Now communications are coming back, and we're starting to get a better picture of what happened when Gaza went dark. And we're asking, how are the people there preparing for the next phase of this war? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. If you could just start by introducing yourself to us, tell us your name, where you are, and what you've been doing for Al Jazeera. I'm Sara Khairat with Al Jazeera as a reporter, and I've mostly been covering the Middle East. I would say I've been here for almost a year in occupied East Jerusalem. And here I am covering the uh, war on Gaza. So we're talking to you as Gaza is slowly coming back from a communications blackout. Did this blackout also mark the start of Israel's ground invasion? Israel is calling it an expansion of a ground invasion. But what we're seeing on the ground is painting a very different picture. This seems to really effectively be a complete blown out war. And every day that goes by, they're going in deeper and deeper. A video emerged this morning of these soldiers putting up an Israeli flag that's said to have been seven kilometers inland when they entered Gaza. Hamas's military wing, or Qassam Brigade, says that it's been attacking those troops that entered and they've put up a really strong fight. So there are clashes, and that has been confirmed by the Israeli side. But the problem is, because there's been a cutoff also of electricity and some of those communications, even though they have been restored, we're not really getting a chance to hear so much from the Palestinians there as to the situation up in the north. But we are getting updates from the Israeli military. There have been five wars that Israel has carried out in Gaza, but this was the first time that Gaza was completely and utterly isolated. We'd seen one video where they had to turn to using the loudspeakers um, used at mosques to spread the message. It was like going back to the Dark Ages in many ways. And it was the most agonizing time as well because some of our colleagues there had no way of letting us know that they were okay. My name is Tahrid Al-Khudari. I'm Palestinian uh, Dutch. I live in Amsterdam. Tahrid lives in Amsterdam, but her family is in Gaza. She says she was terrified. 
it was devastating knowing that you have no contact with the people of Gaza. The day before the blackout, she'd been able to reach some of her family members by phone. I contacted my nephew and my niece, I called them, and all they talked about was how the Israeli attack this time is extremely different from the others. And this time they feel each one of them is a target. This time Israel is bombing homes with families without any warning. And then the communications blackout happened. You see the most intensifying bombardments, complete darkness, blackout. What are they doing? What are they hiding? What are they trying to do when they cut all communication to the entire Gaza Strip? Sarah, our reporter in occupied East Jerusalem, was able to get in touch with Al Jazeera's staff eventually. We did eventually manage, and that was only because they had international SIM cards. If you had a non-Palestinian SIM card, um, you possibly um, could have a signal picked up. It took us um, to the next day before we were able to find one of our colleagues there to go and check in on the others and make sure that they're okay, and thankfully they all are. This really was a turning point because by turning Gaza off and being able to cut it off from the world, many of us couldn't really tell what was going on inside. And we were only getting our information mostly from the Israelis. This is Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announcing that the war is now entering a new phase. Yesterday evening, more of our ground forces entered into Gaza in the development of the stronghold of evil. This is the second phase of the war, whose goals are clear. The destruction of the military and governmental capabilities of Hamas and the return of the hostages home. And Sarah's starting to get a picture of what this new phase will look like. We'd seen a few infiltrations here and there of the Israeli forces going in, almost testing the waters to see what they'll be up against. And now there may be a new level of escalation. Israel is calling for evacuations of Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City. Can you just tell us what's happening there? Al-Quds Hospital is one of the last remaining functioning hospitals in Gaza. And now it's received uh, a warning of immediate effect to evacuate the uh, vicinity. It's 1,300 hours GMT, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Gaza, where Israeli forces are bombing areas close to Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City after ordering the hospital's immediate evacuation just a few hours ago. And you have the World Health Organization already saying that it's deeply concerned by this because the hospital has 14,000 internally displaced people. That means that these are people that were forced to leave their home as a result of the war, Um, mostly people in the north and central of Gaza that have had to head to the south. There have already been airstrikes very close to the hospital. 
Right. And and this comes after an Israeli military spokesperson made it clear that Gaza hospitals could be potential targets. So why? This is because Israel accuses Hamas of using places like hospitals and schools to hide um, their operations, to uh, also use, uh, use the area and the people in it as human shields. They accused uh, the Al-Shifa hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza, of being used as a command center. They said that Hamas has these tunnels underneath the hospital with the command center being used, the one where they make all the big decisions. Hamas has since denied this and says this is an excuse that Israel is using to target civilians. Of course, Israel has, on the other hand, denied that it's targeting civilians, and it says that it's only targeting Hamas. But many are concerned that targeting or hitting hospitals or schools is considered a war crime, even if Hamas was using these places as areas to launch rockets from or as areas that they use to make their decisions, like Israel says, a command center. So there's real concern here. And cracks are beginning to show on the Israeli side. Sarah says the already unpopular Netanyahu is further alienating himself from the Israeli public. Earlier this morning, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was forced to delete a tweet in which he blamed uh, the Israeli military as well as intelligence for being unable to prevent the uh, Hamas attack on October the 7th. This really enraged a few people in the war cabinet, as well as the opposition leader who uh, called it crossing a red line. Benjamin Netanyahu deleted it. He then apologized for the tweet and said that, no, we are working together, of course. But it just kind of ties in to real major concern that there seems to be a little bit of a divide within the war cabinet. A few uh, days ago, there'd been rumors already that uh, the military wanted to go ahead with this uh, ground invasion. Benjamin Netanyahu had been pulling back a little bit while the US, Egypt and Qatar worked on mediations. And this also comes off the back of protests that we've been seeing by uh, families, Israeli families, for the uh, those that are being held captive or those that are missing, demanding to hear answers from uh, Benjamin Netanyahu as to the whereabouts of their family and also what the plan is moving forward. They'd said that this latest bombardment has been, in the words of one of the mothers we spoke to, hell, because they are concerned, they're angry, they're frustrated, and they are really worried that their loved ones will be killed in the airstrikes by their very own government. Uh, In fact, Hamas had recently said that 50 of those captives had already been killed due to the Israeli airstrikes. For those in Gaza and those with family in Gaza, like Tahrid, their only concern now is life or death. When I spoke to my sister the last call before the blackout and she is uh, in Gaza City, she was devastated. And, and uh, you know, they are not talking about food or water or anything else. All they want is how to stay alive when this ceasefire to take place. When will the world intervene and impose this ceasefire on Israel? So they're so afraid to lose themselves, their lives, their loved one's life. And and that is what they feel when you talk to them. 
Some phone and internet services have now been restored after Israel knocked out most communications on Friday. Well, since the war began on October the 7th, Israel's bombing campaign across Gaza has killed 8,005 Palestinians. That's according to the health ministry. Tahrir was finally able to get in touch. My sister finally from Rafah area, she managed to call my sister in Gaza City and the news that they are fine, they are still alive. I just hope this madness to be stopped and, uh, and that these people, you know, in Gaza City, Palestinians in Gaza City, to, to get back to normal. I don't know what it means, but I want this to end. I want a ceasefire badly for them. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Kampana and Zaina Badr, with Amy Walters, Sariel Khalili, Zonia Bagat, Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, Khalid Sultan, David Enders, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.